I don't know if you heard, but my Lush Life Cocktail Tours of Soho just launched this week. Check out LushLifeCocktailTours.com for more information. But rest assured, on each tour, you'll be introduced to some of the most famous bars and bartenders in London. All while sipping their celebrated cocktails and learning about Soho's drinking history. You can find tickets on the website or book directly through TripAdvisor and Airbnb Experiences. Just type in Lush Life Cocktail Tours. Don't miss this sophisticated romp through Soho. Hope to see you there. Now let's get on with the show. Robert Roy McGregor, the infamous 17th century outlaw, was Scottish through and through. Most likely he would have been a little bothered that the classic cocktail named after him was invented in the USA. But it doesn't really matter where it was invented. We are still drinking it thanks to our guest today, the national brand ambassador of Glenn Fittick. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. Alex Walker may not be from Scotland originally, but that doesn't mean he doesn't know a thing or two about Scottish whiskey. His accomplishments speak for themselves, and after stints at the Savoy Beaufort Bar and the Artesian in London, plus winning too many of the world's toughest cocktail competitions to mention here, Rob Roy would definitely be happy with Alex's version of his eponymous cocktail. I grew up in a town called Warrington, which is in between Manchester and Liverpool in the northwest of England. So it's quite a big town, um, kind of known as being quite industrial. So the nickname for our town was called The Wire, which is where the name of the the rugby club comes from as well. So we used to call The Wire because during the Industrial Revolution, we used to make wire. That's why it was called The Wire. So Warrington, it's quite industrial. kind of big for a, for a town as well. I think if they just put like a cathedral in it, it would be called a city. So I grew up there. So my dad was from Warrington, my mum was from Yorkshire. That's why I've got this kind of weird kind of northern mumble. And now I live in London, so I've gotten the kind of- I think of, it's been beaten out of it. It has been beaten out of it, yeah, exactly. It's, there's, no, there's no bit of Yorkshire left until I go home or until I speak to my mum for five minutes on the phone, then it comes back to me. So I grew up in Warrington. Um, yeah, basically just, not really ever intending to get involved in bartending, hospitality, drinks. I used to go out when I was, obviously, when I was 18, <laughs> of legal age, um, just drinking vodka Red Bulls and stuff with my friends, just not knowing anything about alcohol. What were you planning to do, or what did so, you think? So when I was just leaving high school, um, because I was from a bit of an industrial town, the idea of like having a trade whether that be, you know, a plumber, a carpenter, an electrician, something like that. Because apparently those people were never out of work. So after thinking about it for a while, I decided to go and do an apprenticeship in carpentry. So I'm actually a fully qualified carpenter. Um, when I you tried. were young, did you used to, you know, use a hammer I, and nail? I, yeah, and I did you... actually, weirdly enough, I, I did actually quite like it. So my granddad, um, I used to go to my granddad's house and just make like pretend swords and just just playing his garage, just like, you know, just making wood and, I don't know, finding different things to make and then going So you out. had an affinity for it. I did, you know, I did. the reason you chose look, carpentry look, over plumbing. Exactly, yeah, or electricity or elect- being an electrician or whatever. So I got into that. So when I was 15 and a half, I applied for an apprenticeship. And then when I was 16, I actually started work as an apprentice joiner on site. So I was a 16-year-old kid on a building site not knowing what I'm doing. So um, young. Yeah, so very, young. very young. Um, but it got me kind of, obviously, I was quite young, earning a little bit of money, so that was fine. And then slowly, 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 if you fast forward three and a bit years, I ended up passing MVQ Level 3, carpentry and joinery. And then I worked again for about, about two years. So at this point, I was just over 21, 2021. And then the recession happened in the UK. So I lost my job, worked for another job, and then lost that as well because of the recession. There was no work. Obviously, it was kind of like last one in, first one out kind of thing. So at this point, I was earning some pretty decent money for my age. Um, Recession happened twice. Um, And then I decided that I'd had it with my town and my job and 
you know, I had obviously a lot of friends, quite a few friends that were very, very, very close. And I thought, enough of this, I need to go and do something for myself and just kind of enjoy myself. So I decided to go on a gap year. So I went to Australia, I decided, I was looking around and I, I settled on Australia. So I did, ended up did you think you were going to work in Australia or just this was pure no, fun? No, 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 this was just, you know, I'd worked. So I'd kind of, not that, you, I, yeah. Yeah, not that I ever... You never stopped, really? No, no. So I came from school, went into college and then I never really experienced like the uni days right. because that wasn't me at the time. I was very, I didn't really, you know, think that going to uni was important because obviously I'd got into a different route. You know, at no point did I ever think I want to go and do like sociology because it would be of no benefit to me. Right. So I just went straight into trade. So after that, I thought it's time for me to have a bit of a break. So I was like, I'll just go to Australia and have some fun. So I went to Australia, sorted out all my visas and stuff. So I was about 21 at this point. I uh, went to Australia on a year's visa, a year's tourist visa. Oh, sorry, a year working visa, sorry. Um, and then basically my life from there just ends up being a series of cliches. <laughs> So I'm, I'm kind of like a walking cliche. And the fact I can't that, wait to hear which cliche oh, I am, yeah. So I'm, I'm the, the English person that went to Australia on a gap year and then ended up spending quite a lot of money that I'd saved up over the course of me doing carpentry on uh, going skydiving, going on tours, going scuba diving, going bungee jumping, uh, drinking too much, eating too much, partying too much. And then I ended up running out of money so much so that I had to try and get a job. So I got a job for maybe about a week doing carpentry. Car- I say carpentry. If you can't see me on the podcast really? doing this, I'm, I'm doing the inverted commas with my fingers. Carpentry, it was more of a turn up at this job and then you get paid in cash and then leave, that kind of thing. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't about $150 a day for just kind of laboring. And then that, I got really frustrated by doing that because it was kind of bringing back memories of me actually being in England doing that. And I didn't want to do it. So I ended up going into a bar and lying that I'd worked in the bar to get a job in the bar. Why did you decide to do the bar? It was, it was basically, I was walking down the street. So in Sydney, I ended up living in Sydney for five, four, four months, five months. Um, I literally ended up just going up and down the streets, going into call centers, um, offices, uh, I went to Starbucks, but in Starbucks in Australia, you have to train for six months before you actually, you know, get and all this kind of stuff. So everything was kind of against me being in a call center. I didn't want to be inside. And then I ended up walking into this bar. Um, and basically I just said, do you have any jobs going? And they said, yeah. Do you have any experience? So I, I said, yes. I used to work in a pub back in England and they went, you're from England. And I was like, yeah, I was like, right, tick, that's done. I'm from England. They like me already. That's good. So I ended up coming back the next day for an interview or for a trial shift, they called it, because there was no interview. And I did maybe about five hours of work, work, kind of just collecting glasses, running around, washing glasses. And they went, oh yeah, so you come back tomorrow. And I was like, "Do do I have the job? And they went, well, yeah, it's fine. Come back tomorrow. So I ended up staying in that same place for four months. Now, this was before... Did you I, ever tell them by work in a pub you meant drink in a pub? No, I no. didn't. I didn't. <laughs> no, nothing, nothing about that was said ever again. They just kind of thought, his son, you know... Hard he knows work. his way yeah, around the pub. Yeah, just, just, yeah. And it ended up being that I'd stayed there for four, four and a half months working in this bar that ended up being like a really, really good kind of gateway into me wanting to do more. So did that. And it was a place called the Albion Place Hotel in Sydney. It's on right in the middle of George Street. I think it's opposite a place called Star Bar. It's next to a cinema. Um, and it was, they call a lot of their pubs and bars in Australia hotels because mm-hmm. it had like gaming and all this kind of stuff. So I got the ability to do my RSA and RCG. So like gambling and spirit awareness and stuff like that. So that was a good kind of skill to have. I've still got that. I'm not sure if it's valid anymore, probably not. Um, so I ended up doing that learning a little bit about making vodka lemon lemon bitters just basic standard stuff cosmos bits and bobs like that they weren't very good looking back but it's fine it got me kind of aching to do more and then i was deciding if i should stay in sydney for the rest of my year i was like no so i left that job but i left it open-ended and then went off traveling to the northern territory and stuff like Mm -hmm. that again just more you know having fun and then came back to Sydney and worked in the same bar for the last two months of my 
working holiday. That's it. When you say working this bar, did you mean that you were actually making the cocktails or yeah. were you in the bar back? Yeah. No, 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 no. No, no. So, it's just so, you're so in they, there making stuff. Yeah, they threw me in like pretty much at the deep end and obviously I didn't know anything about, you know, measuring things and putting things in a glass properly and chilling glasses down. It was more of a watch what this person's doing and do the same thing. Okay. Um, obviously I had cocktail specs and, you know, I was trying to learn as much as I can at the back bar, but it was, it was quite intense. And it wasn't until I really got back to the UK after being in Australia that I kind of got a bit of a hankering to do more. And that's when I kind of focused on just doing that as opposed to, you know, doing it to make some money. So, yeah, so worked for two months, came back from Australia and then ended up getting a job in my local town of Warrington that I didn't even know was there when I left. Now, were you ever going to come back and be a carpenter? No. Never. That mm. was gone. That had gone the moment that I'd landed in Australia because I was like, or the, maybe not the moment that I'd landed, maybe halfway through I decided that working in a pub or in a bar at the time for me seemed like a bit of a change that I needed because mm -hmm. I thought to myself again I thought I'd done that kind of six five six seven years of you know like knuckling down working loads and I was like I kind of went about life in a bit of a different way where most people do it when they're a bit younger I did it when I was a bit older mm -hmm. so it kind of flipped on its head and obviously looking back now if I had the hindsight of going what if I worked at a bar from when I was 18 I probably would have done that mm -hmm. but it's one of those things so you came back came back so How, I, did you you just thought i'm gonna come home you're gonna come home yeah. to the same area that i was living in before yeah yeah basically so my family still live in warrington um and i basically came back i had the option of staying for a second year because i'd done my what they call regional work so i'd done like or specified work it was like farming for three months to kind of get a second year of working visa if you wanted one mm -hmm. and i kind of got back and I couldn't have used it till I was 30 and I just decided that I didn't want to once I'd got back because I'd missed my friends and my family um, and then I ended up looking for jobs in bar work and I ended up going for an interview at this place called the Palmyra which is in Warrington Town Centre so it's it was a little tiny Victorian terraced house mm -hmm. that they'd converted into a pub or into a bar into a cocktail bar um, and I ended up going for an interview and they asked me where I'd worked and they went, I've worked in Australia. And they went, that sounds good. That's, yeah, why, why did Location you, works yeah, for you, yeah, yeah. right? What, what, what was you doing? Amazing. I was like, I was making, uh, like, you know, trying to remember what I, obviously I still didn't know anything about what I'd really been doing. I was like, I was making uh, cosmopolitans and um, like daiquiris. I didn't have a clue what these things were. I just remember that one was pink and one wasn't. Um, and like vodka lemon lime bitters with, you know, like mojitos. And they all tasted good to me, but I didn't really know anything about them. Uh -huh. um, so I was listening off all these things and they went, okay, cool. Do you want to come and make us some? So I tried to make from memory what I'd done, because obviously there was a bit of partying in between the first <laughs> stage of bartending in Australia to when I'd come back. It was almost like nine months of me not doing anything. Um, so they went, you know, make us some drinks. And I ended up like kind of botching together what I thought was okay. And then they, they, they went, okay, cool. Well, you can have a job at like collecting glasses. That, that, you know, I was like, yeah, cool. But do not touch the drink. Yeah, yeah. So during that point, I'd kind of gone from what I thought was, a, you know, like a good stable career. Then I'd lost my job and then I'd found this new kind of thing. And then I was kind of absorbed into this lifestyle I suppose even though it was only in a small town it was it was very much a lifestyle and this mm -hmm. kind of area of Warrington where I was it was you know it's no nothing compared to London but it was home and it was what it was um, so I ended up going there and then over the course of two years I ended up being the bar and events manager so I went from kind of bar backslash bartender to making drinks making menus um, bar and events manager and then it got to a point where kind of my hometown got a bit too small and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to teach myself anything else because there was nobody teaching me. Mm -hmm. So I'd gotten to the kind of head of where I could get to without obviously going to another pub or bar in Warrington. So I thought I'd had to kind of go further afield. So in my brain, the next logical step was to go to 
the biggest city that was nearby, and that was either going to be Liverpool or Manchester. Settled in Manchester, started to look for places and you know go out in Manchester more and more with my friends, and then I stumbled upon this bar called um, Elixir Tonics and Treats, and I suppose that is when I kind of really started to think about kind of bartending or hospitality as a career. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been to Manchester? I have been to Manchester, okay. yes. I haven't so, been to that. No, part, unfortunately, well, it's, it's closed down now. Mm-hmm. Um, it got, yeah, the building got repossessed and then mm-hmm. it got demolished. So it was a bit of a sad story. But yeah, that was when I went over there in, oh, I don't know what year it was, 2015, I think. Moved to Manchester. No, it was, yeah, maybe Taylor, early 2015. Um, and then got a job as a bartender straight away in this place. Um, obviously, after two years of reading what I could, teaching myself what I could about every bottle of that bar, um, making drinks and making menus, um, I landed on this place that was just ridiculous. It was so cool. It was kind of like, um, I don't know, like a Victorian apothecary kind of place. It was kind of a little bit of a secret, even though it was hiding in plain sight. It was basically, it had like, AstroTurf outside, it had um, kind of like a chaise long outside. It was right opposite Deansgate mm-hmm. um, and opposite Spinningfields where there was a lot of places like the Alchemist and Barnes and things like this. Um, and it was more of a, like a bar of two halves. So during the week, it was amazing, cool cocktails. Mm-hmm. Amazing cocktails. Um, and each one was kind of served in a bit of an eccentric way with something different on it, whether that be, obviously the, the cocktail was the, tonic and then the little tree mm-hmm. on the side with the tree. Um, so we served cool cocktails during the week and then at the weekend it kind of flipped over and was party bar with blowtorches and house music playing. It was very, very loud. Um, and weirdly enough, that was the first place that I'd actually had to wear a uniform at work as well. Did you feel, yes, this is the right place for me to take this next step yeah. into this new career yeah. that I've been in two years, but at a way different level. Yeah, yeah, no, it was definitely a kind of awakening that is the fact that that had been going on whilst I'd been, you know, either doing my carpentry or working mm. in Warrington. This whole other side of things where it was, you know, people were coming in and they were expecting this kind of higher level of of service and kind of hospitality that I actually didn't know anything about. And it was kind of, again, it was kind of starting again, but in a new city. Mm-hmm. So I worked there for two years, started off as bartender, and then made my way to head bartender. Um, so you took to it really yeah, easily and yeah, well. Yeah, I, I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, it just seemed to, at the time, it just was And now it just seems to be like a natural thing that I'm kind of caught up in, you know, this kind of lifestyle of hospitality and bartending, obviously, ambassador now. But it's mm-hmm. it's been a bit of a, um, it was a strange kind of transition going from, what you would expect to be like a eight or four kind of job and then kind of landing yourself into a small town bar job, which is kind of, you know, four till 12. And then it goes to Manchester bars where it's, it's like five till three in the morning. So it's, it was a bit of a strange lifestyle. You know, carpentry, I don't think of it as hospitality per se. Obviously you're making something, it's kind of customer service, but it's not, yeah. but it's not as if you're talking to people no, day no, to day, no. you know, you're busy making yeah. something with your hands. Exactly. Yeah. Giving it to someone. And then there's the, that is similar, yeah. you know, hoping that they love it. But you know, all of a sudden you're talking to people all the time. I guess <laughs> that would be a different. A it is. It, it, yeah. It took, um, I wouldn't say that it took a while to get used to it, but I definitely think, like the household that I was brought up in, we never stopped talking. You know, like I was always, apparently I was talking from a very young age and I haven't shut up since. So it's that kind of, I'm not, I, sh- well, I used to be quite a shy person. Then mm-hmm. you get put behind the bar and you have no choice but to ask people, how they're doing? How, right. How's their day been? And it was just this kind of, almost like a bit of a dance, obviously between both sides of the bar going, how are you? How are you? How are you? Mm-hmm. And just kind of maybe getting on, just naturally kind of being thrust into that situation. What what did you love about it initially that kind of kept your interest? What was it? What was So I think it? when it first started obviously in Australia, it was that kind of buzz of something that I'd never done before. And obviously seeing as a you know an 18, 19 year old, 20 year old kid 
not really knowing anything about bars, but going into them and then being on the other side of that and dealing with that kind of, you know, sometimes it's stressful. Most of the time it's a lot of fun. And I think it was just that kind of initial like buzz of everyone behind the bar is one team. And then obviously everyone on that time is not part of your team, but it's part of the family that you've invited in. Yeah, I guess, and tell me if I'm wrong here, that after six years of kind of doing something by yourself, you're now doing something super social. Yes, yeah. And having fun at it and getting paid. Yeah, it's, again, it it was a, I still have to pinch myself sometimes and think there's certain days when I would work, you know, whether that's bartending or ambassador, I'm like, is this actually what what my job is now (laughs) instead of sweating and getting dirty on a, on a bar, unless it's something that I'm obviously involved in, mm-hmm. like building something for an event or, you know, not that that's happened yet, but I'm sure it will be, but none of this getting up at five in the morning and getting to work at half seven and getting dirty. Well, you, now you go to sleep at five in the exactly. morning, right? Well, <laughs> Instead of only, getting up. If, only if I choose to. Right. So you're in Manchester loving this elixir. Yes. And we're sitting here though in London now. We are. And you could have stayed in Manchester. There's a lot happening there. There's a lot lot happening in the north. There's a lot happening everywhere. There is, yeah. There is now, yeah. So what was that decision to come down here? I think it was the same situation that I was in in Warrington. So for me, I'd picked the best place at the time for myself in Warrington. Obviously, I didn't pick it. I didn't know at the time that it was going to end up to be something that snowballed into what, what we made it as a team. And... You know, it was a very small kind of family of people that we all kind of got mingled up in in Warrington. And then obviously it got too small, so I moved to Manchester. And then I picked somewhere that was, I could see myself as a, you know, it's very much me. It was very much me at the time. It was um, somewhere that I felt really, really comfortable. And I think if I went anywhere else in Manchester at that time, I wouldn't have felt as comfortable. Um, But then the same thing happened. I got to this point where... Um, I was learning as much as I could. And as I was learning, I suppose the city was getting smaller with the places that I could actually go to. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, looking back now, I mean, obviously now in the north, there's so many amazing places that have opened up or are going to open up in Manchester. Um, But I think at the time, three and a half years ago, nearly four years ago now, my options of moving to bars in Manchester was quite sparse for what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I wanted that kind of fun aspect but it's kind of serious bartending so it got to a point where I was like I need to do something radical but I didn't know what I was going to do yet I was kind of getting a bit frustrated at the time so I decided that I'd just hand my notice in uh, Elixir and then try and figure out what to do next but before I actually handed in my notice um, my girlfriend or my partner she was at university in Crewe um and she was obviously from, she's from London, my partner. Um, and she bought me like um, a molecular mixology course that was in London. And she went, I think you should go down and enjoy it. It's something, you know, I thought it'd be really, really good for you to kind of get involved in. It's something that you've not done before. So I ended up going down. Um, and this was actually my first time coming to London by myself as what I'd considered to be, you know, a bartender now, as opposed mm-hmm. to just being like a bartender or whatever. So I came down to London, two day or no, it was like a day and a half by myself. Um, it was near Euston. It was this, um, I'm not sure who it was that ran it. It was basically just like a, mole- a molecular mixology course where they taught you uh, like spherification and like making bubbles and all this kind of like foams. <laughs> so I went down there and then I was like, cool, I did the course, got my certificate and that was fun. That was exciting. Um, it, was a, it was actually a lot of fun. And then I ended up going you know, hitting a few bars in London that I really wanted to go to. So the first place that I went to was, um, where did I go to? I went to a, a random pub somewhere that was already off the charts compared to any pub back up in Warrington. And then I went to Savoy. So I walked into the Savoy and I was like, like a kid on Christmas day. I was like, I don't know what's, what I'm doing here. I was like, I just walked in, you know, somebody opened the door for me. I was like, why did they open the door for me? I was like, <laughs> Again, again, just kind of stepping up kind of hospitality in right. general. So I went to the American bar and then sat down or asked for a, a seat. Were you, this was, the, is this the, I'm oh, sorry, you said American bar, not the Yes, so American, yeah, so I sorry, went to the American that, bar yeah. um, and walked up the stairs and um, looking back now, it was actually Joe who sat me down. 
who was the supervisor there. So he sat me down and I, I was like, I, is there any chance that I could sit at the bar? And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Come and sit at the bar. And I sat down and I was like, I just, I didn't know what to think about it. I'd, I'd managed to get into a hotel wearing like a, a jumper and my trainers and jeans. I was like, I don't know what's, I don't know what's happening. So I ended up spending about three hours just sat there talking to Dominic, who was one of the senior bartenders there at the time. Um, and we just got talking and I just asked the question. I was like, what would I have to do to get a job in this hotel? Just, that was, that was literally the only question that I ever asked him. And he was like, well, like for a bartender. And I went, yeah. And he was like, well, bartending positions don't really come up that often because we mostly pres- like promote from inside normally um, as a kind of like nice learning curve. And I was like, cool. Um, you know, how often do those jobs come up? Like barbacks or servers? Um, and he was like, well, depends on how many people get promoted or how long they get promoted. And I was like, cool. Can I, can I give you a message? Like when I'm back in Manchester, and he was like, yeah, cool. Um, and I think it was maybe about a week and a half or two weeks later. Obviously I hadn't handed him my notice at Elixir at this point. About one and a half, two weeks later, Dominic messaged me and was like, there's a bar back position that's come up in the Beaufort bar. And I went, and he was like, I think you should apply for it. So I applied for it. Um, sorted my CV out, did all this kind of formal stuff and then set my CV off. Got a reply from Anna, so Anna Sebastian, who's now one of my really, really close friends. She emailed me and was like, I'd like to give you an interview. Now we can either A, do it over Skype, or B, you can come down to London. I was like, that's it, I'm on a train down to London. When's the interview? And she, I think, you know, she told me a date. So I got the train down, did my interview, came back up, uh, went and did my shift in the bar. Then the next day she phoned me up and told me that I got the job. And I was, I was blown away. I didn't even know what to think. So it was then oh that God, I had... A week later. Dude. Yeah, literally, yeah, that was it. And then I handed in my notice at Elixir, um, sorted out all the kind of formal moving stuff, said goodbye to my friends. It, re- it happened in a bit of a fast turnaround. It was... I don't even know when I went for my interview, but I left on the 26th of June, I think, maybe, 2016. Left and then came down to London. And that's when I, again, it kind of upped me out of my comfort zone. Looking back now, I could have quite easily gone into a bar in London and tried to get a, bar, a job as a bartender. Mm-hmm. Or looking back now, if they'd have offered me a bartending position in the both bar, I knew that, that I would have gone down and made an absolute fool out of myself because I would have gone, yeah, I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I, I knew things about you know, what I thought, again, about, about making drinks properly. But then when I went down there and saw the kind of, or down here, because we're in London now, and the kind of caliber of what everyone was doing in the city and what, you know, the service standards, this, the the other, um, it was mind-blowing. Well, especially because you're at the Savoy. I mean, one of the great hotels of the world (laughs) with standards that are the top, top, top. Yeah, so so I'm kind of proud to say that my first job in London was at the Savoy, and it was... (laughs) to this day, it still sounds quite comical that I actually, I've been on this journey that's kind of landed me in, well, at that point, in like one of the world's best hotels and one of the best looking bars in the whole world. So the Bova Bites, just gorgeous in every way. So I ended up working there. Um, I did, I started off as a bar back and everybody, all my friends were like, why are you doing that? I was like, why would I not? Yeah. It's, it's, and maybe being a bar back there is, yeah, a completely it's, different experience yeah, it's, it's, than just it's, anywhere. Yeah, I mean, obviously it was hard work, but it was a lot of fun because you were still working, you know, as a part of the bar team. So I, I started off as a bar back, kind of fast forwarded, uh, got promoted after six months to a server, stayed on the floor for, a, I think, just under a year, maybe a little bit lo- lower than that, as a server, and then got promoted to bartender. So it was a it was a good natural progression, mm-hmm. and over the course of that time, I've been able to learn different parts of. What's like going to university? Yeah, really? yeah. You so know? you know how the hotel works, how people work. You know, speaking to guests properly from all over the world. From all yeah. over the world, you know, learning about different cultures and you know food, and because we had lots of restaurants in the hotel as well, dealing with chefs and you know just just high quality of service, um, and that's. Yeah, it's, it was a mind-blowing experience. 
Um, let's talk about competing. I know you've gone off to do many things, and yes. we're going to talk about them. But the kind of whole world of, of competitions, which you have just thrived in, um, did you start that in Manchester, or was I, that actually? At the... I did. Yeah, I started that. Um, there's a company in Manchester or around the northwest called Hammonds of Nutsford, and they're like a spirits distributor, I suppose mm-hmm. is what they call it, um, and they did. I think it was um, like the Manchester, like imbibe in Manchester. Oh yeah. And they hosted, um, it was a Hammonds of Nutsford like whiskey competition. And I entered it and then won. And ended up winning. You like, take very well to competitions. What's, that was the first one, the first proper <laughs> Do you remember one. what you made? No, it was kind of like a, I think it was a riff on a Manhattan. And then I smoked it with some wood chips because smoking things out of smoke was, was really popular back like three years ago. So I just thought any kind of thing that I could do, but that, that wasn't actually the first competition that I did. The first competition was when I was in Warrington, went to Manchester for a Benedictine competition and I had never done a competition in my life. And I turned up and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a speech prepared. I didn't know hardly anything about the product. I knew a few key dates about, you know, Benedict- I knew what it was, but I didn't know anything about who made it, where it was from. Um, uh, nothing. I, so that was a that was a learning curve that I applied to the next one. So, I, so you didn't win that one. No, I didn't. No, no I, I came stone cold last. <laughs> I mean, they didn't award a last place, but I knew that yeah. I'd already won last place. Um, so that was a really big like learning curve because I just I didn't know what to expect. It was my first one. I was like, I don't know what to expect. Nobody had told me anything about it, or you know, how, you or how to win it. So yeah. I just turned or up. That you up. should know anything about the yeah, alcohol. Yeah, yeah. That's... You should, that was number one. <laughs> Again, learning curve. Right. So I, I won the, the Hammers and Nuts one and I ended up winning something like 500 quids worth of, you know, it was a mix of what you could pick from. You could pick from their product list and I ended up picking like kind of 15 kind of core bottles that I thought at the time. So there was, you know, I got a bottle of Sweet Vermouth, bottle of Dry Vermouth, gin, vodka, whiskey, rum. Mm-hmm. And, and I just had them in my kind of room that I was renting in Shoreditch on my table. Um, just looking at them going, what can I make out? You know, and, and then again, all I was doing at home was just kind of playing around with stuff and just kind of experimenting. Mm-hmm. So that was probably the first competition that I'd won. First proper one. Um, but when I was at the Savoy, there was two that I actually won. So I won the, um, the 1800 tequila visionaries comp. So I ended up just submitting a recipe of something that I thought. So you had to make a cocktail based around an iconic building. And I was stood, I was actually on a hosting shift. So in, in American bar, most hotel bars, you have a host at the front of the door. So I just kind of stood there, you know, greeting people, saying good evening. And I was trying to, I was racking my brains about, you know, you know, what iconic buildings I could, you know, in London, I was like, what is it? There's the Gherkin, there's the walkie talkie, there's the Shard. And then I was kind of looking around going, this is a pretty iconic building that I'm stood in. <laughs> So I ended up making it about the Savoy. So it, that was the name, where the name came from. Mm-hmm. So it was, I think my cocktail was called Impresario. So an Impresario was, um, so I think it was Richard Doyley Cart that built the Savoy. Right. Again, I'm racking my brains for Savoy's history again. Um, and he was an Impresario at the time, so he was putting on productions um, at the Savoy Theatre. So I named the cocktail after him, or the, the Impresario theme. And it was, the drink itself was more of a, so as you walk into the Savoy, you're greeted with like smells and aromas. And then you go down, you see the chocolate shop, you see the afternoon tea place, you see the Beaufort bar, the American bar and all the restaurants. So I co- took kind of core aspects and made the cocktail taste like the smell of the Savoy. I know that sounds very strange. Um, basically the Savoy's got a really kind of nice signature scent. So I made a perfume using like orange bottom water and all these kind of different things that I could manage to find from like housekeeping but then apply it to cocktails. So I ended up winning that. And then my trip was to go to Mexico. So I went to Mexico on a holiday. Well, on holiday, it was it was a holiday. It was it was a lot of fun. It was six days in Mexico. Um, had a bit of a party in Cancun and then went to tequila. And that was just mind blowing. It was ridiculous. And then that kind of got me again. I was thinking, how do people just like win cocktail competition. Then I ended up winning one. I was like, ah, I see. Actually knowing about what you're doing is <laughs> number one, you know, obviously knowing your cocktail inside and out and what, 
what you're actually going to do with it as well. It's, I, I found that to be quite important. And then I think after I won that, I started to think about what else I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, because being a bartender at the Savoy, yeah. Beaufort Bar, it's pretty hard to top that. I think so. so. It, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, even, I mean, even like, so again, people were saying, why did you go down and start as a bar back? And I was like, looking back now, I can tell them com- like confidently that being a bar back allowed me to have the time to be able to do the stuff for my cocktail competitions. So when I was, you know, if between in runs of glasses and topping stuff on the, up on the bar, I was coming back and writing stuff down, trying stuff at different, you know, just, just bits and bobs, like sampling stuff. And that allowed me the time to, to focus on my 1800 drink that I perfected when I was in the back of the both bar. So I think, I suppose if there's anybody listening here that's thinking, I don't have any time to make a comp drink, then you definitely do, because it's just about making time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so eventually when I was a bartender, um, I think the next competition that I went for was Beef Eater. And again, I did Beef Eater, um, because it was kind of a quintessentially British gin, I suppose. Um, and I was in a, I was in the quintessential British hotel. I was like, yeah, let's just do it. Let's, you know, go for it. And again, it was, it was a cocktail based around the city that you lived in. I was like, cool. I've just moved to London like a year ago. I think I know it pretty well. Turns out that I didn't know London at all because I'd never gone on a bus tour, didn't do anything touristy because I'd just gone straight from work into work. So I thought I'd take some time out like on the weekends and go on like bus tours. And then I ended up going kind of west-ish London to a place called Sion House. Um, and Sion House is in Sion Park. So that's S-Y-O-N Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I ended up walking through and there was like a flag on my phone and it was like, you know, like locations of where you are. Just Google it. And then it says... Um, Beef Eater 24 launches at Sion House. And I went, that's a great idea for a cocktail. So then, I, again, it's just kind of right situation, right time. I just kind of ended up spinning this cocktail into my Beef Eater cocktail. Mm-hmm. So I called the cocktail Sion House. And again, it was all about, it was about the Sion House estate going through different ownerships from the 14th to the 19th century. And each century represented one ingredient in the drink. So it was a, kind of like a staggered approach. And then I ended up going to the competition for the UK and winning that and then going into the globals. And I got into the top eight in the globals, which was really pretty great. cool. Yeah, so that was, again, that was a, a bit of a, yeah. An so you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You're I, winning competitions, you're at the Savoy. It's obviously, so really far from being a carpenter. Yeah, really, very, very you far. Know. Obviously, I'm still... Unless you would have... I'm sure you would have won competitions, carpentering competitions. <laughs> right? Definitely. It's make, in your nature. Who can right? make the best staircase. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, no, I... Did I'm, you think there would be, you know, anywhere else to go? I mean, was it... It must have been super hard to leave. <clears throat> Savoy. Yeah. Yeah, so, it, it, again, it was... I was kind of thinking... I, I think all along my kind of career of bartending, it's been that kind of what's next kind of thing. So I mentioned that I have an interview with Anna. So Anna's now turned into a really good friend of mine. Um, so she was my bar manager. And then it ended up being this course of, you know, I got involved with the cocktail menu in the Beaufort bar. We, we did a really, really cool cocktail menu. Um, I managed to get a drink on there, which was already like a bit of a highlight. So that's like a tick. That was one of the aims when I first moved down. So I won a couple of comps and then I was bartending there. And then I was starting to think about what was next. Um, you know, the team was changing a little bit. Yes, Anna moved on because she was one of my uh, first guests. Yeah, so, so Anna moved. Yeah. Um, Anna got a job at Artesian in the Langdon. Um, and basically I was deciding what to do next, whether to stay. Um, I just I couldn't make my mind up. And then I basically got, yeah, like the hankering to leave somewhere again. Obviously, I still go back now. It's still what I consider my local, which is... A bit of a strange thing for someone to say that their local pub is a five-star hotel bar, but it's fine. Um, So Anna left, and then I ended up getting a job at Artesian. So I left both a bar after about two years. Um, Built up a really, really good network of people from people coming in, because obviously it was quite a destination hotel and bar. 
Um, so I had quite a lot of contacts, a lot of friends, um, like quite close family friends now as well. So one of the bartenders that works at both by still, you know, he's my best friend. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, there was no bitterness when I left. It was more of a personal kind of, I had to do something different. And, you know, you're jumping right into another hotel bar. Yes. Which, was it super different from what you had experienced? It, it was, yeah. So I think with the Savoy being quite a, I want to say maybe traditional mm-hmm. hotel bar, maybe that's the wrong way to, to describe it. I know that it's changed a lot now. You know, it's become, you know, less less formal, more kind of casual and style, but the service standards are still there. So I thought when I left the Bova Bar, I was thinking, should I go for another hotel bar or do I want to have a bit of a break and just, you know, make some daiquiris and pop open some beers and just have some fun for a bit? And then I was like, hmm, I don't know. And then anyway, this this situation presented itself at Artesian through Anna. Um and then I decided to kind of jump on that. I know in my brain, I was thinking it's another hotel bar, but it's a different style. Mm. So at the time, and obviously still now, um, it was being headed by Remy Savage. Um, so me and one of my close friends called VTech, we left more or less at the same time and went to go and join Artesian. And at the time it was kind of building up this, this momentum of, it kind of dropped off the, the map on the bars list, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of trying to build it up as well. Um, so I got on board a couple of months after they all started as the new kind of bar team headed up by Remy. Um, and then again, just kind of thrust everything that I had at doing stuff in a different way. So learning new skills, um, obviously new bar skills, you know. Can you be a bit more techniques. specific about yeah, that? Yeah, sure. So again, it was all a kind of a learning curve, but we had, you know, things like... Um, I don't know, be, being super accurate at making drinks. So I, in the Savoy, I've never really experienced things like a wash line. Just and it, looking back now, it seems a bit daft that I've never, even when I was a warranty, that I'd never even occurred of, you know, thinking about wash lines and how long you shoot your drinks for and stuff. Um, but Artesian really kind of, again, switched my way of thinking about drinks. Not even just drinks, but like the back of like how drinks work. Mm-hmm. The kind of obviously technical aspects of it and... Artesian, we had a lot of toys. I mean, I say toys, things like root of apps and... Um, All those things from your molecular mixology course. <laughs> yeah, it kind of scaled up to 11 a little bit, but it was more of a, you know, like... Centrifuge. Centrifuges. <laughs> that was I knew you were going to say that. Um, uh-huh. Well, that's kind of where they made their name to begin with. Yeah, exactly. It was a kind of pushing things forward a little bit in kind of bartending and just, you know... Obviously, they were the best bar in the world, and they're uh-huh. trying to get back up there. And you know, they're still trying to do that now. But it's a little touch of the El Bulli they have there. Yeah, like the- and the, the team as well, because every single person was so different. They brought different aspects to it. Um, so there was just there was this one girl who's who's one of my friends as well called Rebecca Sides, and she was just mad skillful at you know accuracy tests, wash lines, um, ice, you know, like cutting ice, and just just bits and bobs like that it was. It was quite crazy to look at things just in a bit of a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it was just adding to my kind of repertoire of what I was doing over the course of bartending. So I stayed at Artesian for maybe just under a year and a half. I is think. that when Glenn Fiddick came calling? It is. It, it kind of was a bit of a strange thing after that. Um, so I was, I was at Artesian um, trying to decide what to do next. And I was like, right, I'm going to be 30 next year. I'm 30 now. And I was like, I, I don't think I can bartend forever. And I was like, there's only going to be so much time left in me that I can, you know, start work at five o'clock and finish at five in the morning or get home at five in the morning. And I was like, there's got to be something else that I can do. Um, but when I was still in Warrington, I'd done a few little bits and bobs for a rum company. I'm not going to say which room it is, but um, it was more of like a you know, one-man band kind of thing. You'd go and try and sell this room into bars if you want, mm-hmm. you know, like 60 quid a week or whatever it was. And then that kind of got me thinking of a different thing or a different way to approach it. So when I moved to Manchester, it got better. You know, I was going into more bars and trying to get this room into another bar. And then I ended up doing a little bit for a vodka company as well at the same time that was run by the same person. Um, and then just kind of like going off and it, you know, obviously on the side of bartending. Um, 
So I was thinking when I was at Artisan, I was like, maybe brand ambassador work would be a good thing to get involved with. Because you must have met a lot of brand ambassadors while you were there. So I think obviously Savoy and Artesian, like the people that come into those kind of bars that work in the industry, that they are, you know, every other person that comes in, you know, just friends that now Mm. I can call them my friends. Um, But it was more about just getting to know everyone that I possibly could in the industry and whether that was going to, you know, uh, master classes or um, trainings or, you know, just little things all around the city. Every occasion, if it was a like a new cachaça or something that was coming out, I'd be there just kind of going, what's this? And then running into all these people that I'd just seen last week at a rum tasting. And then I think it's that way, just kind of putting your neck out a little bit and just getting to know as many people as you could. Mm-hmm. So that when the point in my life came and I was like, right, I need to think what I'm going to do. I was kind of approached. No, I wasn't approached. I was I was looking for a new kind of way to to still be in the industry but not be on the bar. So I was like, brand ambassador work. Um, and then I ended up kind of toying with the idea. I went for a couple of interviews with some different places. And then John Waite, who's the UK brand ambassador for Winky Shoulder, weirdly enough, just messaged me out of the blue on New Year's Eve last year. I just landed in Budapest with my partner on holiday for my for New Year's Eve for you know near enough for my birthday you know thirtieth birthday, and he messaged me and was like, um, "We've got. A, have you ever considered getting into brand ambassador work?" And I was like, "Weirdly enough, I have been thinking a lot about it." And he was like, "Oh, cool. Um, it's just that one there's a there's a brand ambassador job that's come up for one of our smaller whiskey brands," and I went, "Smaller whiskey brands." I was like, Elsa Bay or, you know, Tomo Jew. And he was like, no, no, it's for Glenfiddich. And I went, a small whiskey <laughs> company. And I was like, that's baffling. Like, and he was like, yeah, I think you'd be perfect for it. I think you should apply for it. I was like, what? Like a small whiskey <laughs> One brand. of the most famous brands in the yeah, world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, that's bizarre. So I just got my holiday over and done with. And I, I told my partner, I was like, there's a job going at Glenfiddich. She was like, what's that? I was like, it's whiskey. It's like, it's one of the, you know, it's the biggest brand, one of the biggest brands in the world of whiskey. And I was like, okay, cool. So I just, I, you know, got on with my holiday, came back, went for a coffee with John. He told me some more about it and, you know, like what our brand ambassador is and what the role kind of ensures. And I was like, it sounds amazing. Like, cool. So again, same thing happened. Lots of coffees, lots of meetings. I ended up meeting with who is now my head of whiskey and my brand manager. We had a coffee. Had a bit of a chat, sorted out my CV, um, and then I was kind of gearing up. I got invited for an interview, basically, is what happened. Um, ended up going for an interview, and in this meantime, I had to come up with doing a tasting. So I had to host a tasting for Glenfiddich 12, and then I had to do a presentation. Um, and it was something that I'd never done before, so I put every kind of effort that I did mm-hmm. into it. and kind of just at that point, I was starting to get like nervous and like like, agitated. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. If I don't get it, do I still want to be a bartender? So I ended up going for the interview, took my laptop, did a tasting that seemed to go quite well, even though I was like absolutely just shaking. I was trying to remember everything that I could, you you know, random facts. Because I was trying to learn as much as I could about Glenfiddich at the time, even though I would have had like a, a big love of whiskey even from when I was in Australia, you know, it's just just drinking scotches and sodas in the middle of summer in Australia. It was mm. it was delicious. Um, so I ended up going, doing this presentation, doing this whiskey tasting, left, got on the train, and then I was like, I don't know how. Well, you know, I was I was just I was shaking. I was like, because I think it was a bit of a adrenaline, or whether it was you know I was nervous. It was a bit of both, and I ended up. I don't know what the time scale was of it. I think I got invited for, no, they said, you know, it went really well and stuff. You've got a second interview. So just when you think one is over. Yeah. So looking back now, the second interview was the final interview Mm -hmm. and it was with my marketing director for the UK. And literally like two days before I'd gotten really, really ill, like one of the illest that I've ever been. And I turned up and I was like sweating, but I was cold. And I was like, you know, I'd just like thrown up like the hour before and I was turning up and I, I was sat at this table kind of shaking, quivering with my jumper on. 
Um, and he was like, I'd like you to, you know, if you could, do you want to run through it? You don't have to. If you want to go through what you did at your last interview. And we was like, just talking. And I managed to scrape, you know, what I thought was a successful interview left and then went home and just kind of crawled into bed. And this was at like two o'clock in the afternoon. And I was like, oh, that went really bad. Really, really bad. And luckily, fortunately, I'd left my phone on loud. My phone was next to me. I got woken up and it was my head of whiskey. And he went, well, there's some good news and some bad news. Um, and it was like, okay, what's the good news? Nah. And then I was like, no, 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 what's the bad news? And he went, well, you're going to have to tell uh, Anna that you're going to have to leave Artesia. Um. And then he was like, the good news is that you, you've got the job. You know? And I was like, oh my God, you know, that's amazing. I was like, so overwhelmed. And I just went back to sleep. I, was, I didn't know what else to do. I was, in, I was quite in shock. And then I woke up and I was like, well, that went well. And that was it. And I was like, cool. And now... You know you can perform well under stress. Under stress yeah, and, and under being ill. And Ill. Um, yeah, so now we're... What is it? The 17th? So tomorrow it'll be six months since I started working for Glenn Philip. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's been a pretty intense journey. It's still, still early days, I suppose, but it's a bit of a different lifestyle. Well, it's a very different lifestyle as opposed mm-hmm. to Barton. Mm-hmm. But like I say, I'm still involved with... Hospitality, let's say. So what are you what are you doing in these past six months? What am I doing? Or so, what do you hope to achieve? Oh. So what I have been doing, um, so my job as a brand ambassador, I'd say, is kind of advocacy based. So um, I do a lot of trainings, a lot of tastings for bars and restaurants, um, a lot of dinners, I suppose, if you want to say that. And just kind of being a, an advocate or a face for the brand for for England and for Wales. So it's... Because it's a known brand. It I mean, is. It is. It's not as if you have to introduce something. No, no. So or I could be totally wrong. You, no. know, you know, it is everyone knows the bottle. It's so yes. iconic. Yeah. The name, the spirit, you know, it's, if it's, of all the whiskey brands yeah, in so the world, it, it, that is one that is you know, most people know. Yeah, so so where we're at now, we are the number one best-selling single malt in the world, and we are the number one in the UK. Um, so again, that, that kind of, that in itself, when I first started was like, so like, I couldn't quite believe it that I'd actually got the job, just for that kind of sake. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a large burden it's kind of like walking into the Savoy it was it was that all over again so I knew that I I had to kind of challenge myself again but in a different way Um, so now I've got this job as National Brand Ambassador for Glenfiddich which is it's a huge like it's a huge honour and a huge privilege to be able to represent that brand I suppose Um, and obviously it's got 133 years of history and heritage and and what we're doing with Glenfinnick now, it's always been that kind of thing of innovation. So we're constantly evolving and innovating as maybe like a distilling family. So it's that kind of, where can we push it, I suppose? And, you know, kind of pushing boundaries, thinking of the next thing, experimenting. Um, and that's what I've seen over the past six months. Obviously, it's still I'm still quite new. Um, but I think the six months that I've had to to kind of really get stuck in with the branding, get familiar with people that make it, everyone up at the distillery, all my other ambassadors from around the world. I think there's 29 of us now. Oh. 28, 29. There's quite a lot of us around the world. So four years ago, there was 20. And then it's just That's grown huge, and grown yeah. and grown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's still, you know, it's, to my brain, it still echoes as that, what John's in, you know, one of the smallest brands, but it really isn't. It's the best selling single malt in the world. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's interesting what you said about it always innovating because it's 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 been around for a long time yeah. and I yeah, yeah. I think that it always had to innovate mm. to become the number one. Yeah, I think so, mm-hmm. definitely. So, what are some of the things that they're trying to innovate now or to do now? now? So, over the past four years, um, so from 2015 to where we are now, they we've released a thing called the Experimental Series. So, the Experimental Series of whiskies were kind of designed for, I, I, I want to say maybe like a, the already established whiskey drinker that wanted to try something different, I suppose. Um, so at Glenfiddich, we're kind of, again, 
pushing boundaries or pushing people's perceptions of what we think a single malt whiskey can be, mm. what they think a single malt whiskey can be. So, so what do you think is the perception? And then tell me how they're trying to break it. So I think in terms of what a single malt should be, um, in my, or what I used to think a single malt whiskey should be was kind of a big age statement, you know, just well-known brand, sat in front of a fire, you know, with a beard, in the middle of winter, that kind of just having it, you know, with no ice and no water. And then this kind of pushing the boundaries of what we can do as a, as a whiskey company. Like, so 2015, we launched the IPA experiment alongside with the Project 20. So the IPA experiment was the first single malt whiskey to be aged in IPA casks or finished or cask finished. So cask finishing is actually something that we developed back in the 1980s. So our sister company, if you want to say the Barveni. So David Stewart developed the idea of cask finishing and that was something that we did. And then, yeah, so that was the IPA experiment. Project 20 was something that on paper shouldn't have really worked. So the idea behind the Project 20 was that Brian Kinderman, who's the malt master, invited the 20 brand ambassadors down to the warehouses of Glenfinnick and said to them, go into a warehouse, I want you to pick five casks that you just like the look of. So they weren't allowed to smell them or taste them, just how they looked. So they picked their five casks and then the next day they were invited back in um, and in front of them, around a, a table, they were all had, they all had their five whiskies that they picked and out of the five whiskies, they had to pick one that they really liked. So at this point, they were all starting to get really excited. They were like, we're going to get some kind of single cask just for us that we can take to our guests and our customers. That didn't happen. So what Brian ended up doing was taking them 20 casks that were different ages, different strengths, different styles, and marrying them together to make one whiskey. So four years ago, the breakdown of it was there was 17 ex-bourbon, there was two ex-sherry and one port pipe. 47% non-chill filtered, very delicious. So I get it was something that- Because that could have gone so it could, long, it could have tasted yeah, terrible. Exactly, it could have tasted really bad, but that's where Brian still comes in. You know, he's got the ability to you know, do you know, different proportions and then season it right at the end with different things. So the port pipe was, obviously if you was to put everything into one cask, you know, mm-hmm. you'd probably end up with something that was dark and pink. Right. So that didn't happen. It just ended up being a really, really well-balanced whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after we did the IPA and then the Project 20, the innovation kind of kept going. So Brian thought he'd play around with wine casks a little bit. Um, he's always played around with wine casks because there's something that really interests him. But as a, as a malt master, he's always got experiments going on at the distillery um, within our million casks that we've got. So we've got quite a lot of whiskey at our disposal. Um, so the Winter Storm was our next experiment, which was 21-year-old Glenfiddich that was finished off in ice wine casks. So Canadian ice mm-hmm. wine. Yeah. It was, it's actually really, it's delicious. It's one of my favorite things that we actually make. It's so, so good. Um, but again, it was an experiment. So it could have gone really badly wrong, but it didn't. Um, and the kind of experimenting with different ages of... You know, what would go well with the wine casks and stuff because ice wine is very very sweet right. so we needed something that would stand up to it so we picked the 21 year old um, and then we finished it off in ice wine casks that was very very delicious and then most recently we've launched the Fire and Cane so Fire and Cane is um, Peter Glenfiddich and then we marry it with Unpeter Glenfiddich and then we finish it off in a Latin rum cask so it's these little things these little kind of flourishes that kind of make us a little bit different as a as a whiskey company, I'd say, um, going about for the IPA, for example, we we could have quite easily gone to a beer company and said, "Can we have your old casks?" Because we want to finish the whiskey off in them. Um, but instead of doing that, we actually had a beer made especially for us, so we can ensure consistency and quality right. throughout what we're doing. So with the fire and cane, we actually have a rum made to a specification for us, and then we we cask finish the. We finish the casks off with the rum and then we wipe the whiskey back into it. So it's at no point do we ever have any kind of worry about the consistency of what we're, what we're doing. So yeah, that's what's quite exciting, I think. And it's always, there's always something going on in Brian's mind, whether it's a cask that's around a distillery that has got something in it that couldn't be classed as whiskey. It's always a learning curve for him. 
And it makes it super exciting to work for something, a brand that is always always innovating, always thinking of something. Always. I mean, obviously with that, we still have, you know, none of these things are ever going to replace our age statements of whiskey because, you know, some people really like an age statement. And that's what I've learned over the past six months is that people are, are, sometimes it's true, especially to our 12 year old. So people know what that is. They feel comfortable with it. So that's what they want to drink. And there's, there's, you know, we're not here to tell you how to drink your whiskey. It's, it's, you know, how to enjoy it, how you want to. So I think with the age statements and stuff, they're not going to replace any of them, but it's just a bit of a different kind of uh, branch of the tree, I suppose, just exploring something different, but still got the same kind of core foundations of what we actually do at Glenfiddich as well, which is quite interesting. Well, you're making me super thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> Can we go pop some open? Sure. And have a sip? Let's go. That sounds good to me. FYI, Alex described learning about the wash line of a cocktail. I had no idea what that was, so I asked him. For those who might not know either, it's the level of the drink below the rim of the glass. If a cocktail is shaken for too long, the wash line will be right at the top, making it awkward to drink without spillage. After the interview, we had a tasting of the new expression Glenfiddich Grand Cru, which I just have to share with you. So, what are we going to try here? So, I thought we'd finish off with um, the latest in our series of whiskeys that we're doing at Glenfiddich. So, this is um, our Glenfiddich Grand Cru. So, this is um, the latest thing that Brian's been working on. Um, so, this is actually 23-year-old Glenfiddich. Um, so it's made up of a proportion of high levels of American oak with a touch of Mediterranean. And then we finished the whole thing off in French Cuvée casks. Now... I smell it already. It's, Just it's And the glass delicious. is not that close to me. No, it's not. <laughs> so so, so the, the actual whiskey itself is um, designed for inviting more, fam- more people into our whiskey family. So it, it kind of broadens the horizon. So it's, it's a dram for kind of celebratory occasions. So we, we made this um, with that in mind, so that kind of celebrating things and celebrating the occasion, I'd say. So it's a 23-year-old Lymphidic Asian ex- or French Cuvée casks, which are the first casks that, we, that are used by French sparkling wine producers for the first fermentation of the wine before it goes into the bottle for their second fermentation. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're going to try, we can, I'm not going to tell you how to drink it. You can, you can enjoy it how you want, but maybe just give it a bit of a a swirl to liven it up and then oh it smells so good just, it smells so good so this is yeah what you really get from French Cuvée casks are those kind of yeasty bread notes mm-hmm. that you would expect from a sparkling wine so sparkling wines have kind of long been associated with that you know drink for a celebrating so we thought we'd tap into that kind of market um, and just kind of go for something that would be seen to be celebrating with friends. So when we first made it, have a sip. When we first had the idea about making it and cask finishing, obviously Brian has got this knowledge of how wine casks work. So he already knew the flavor profile that he was kind of going for. But when he first dropped it in, so we could take our 23-year-old Glenfiddich and then we put it into a Cuvée cask. Now, when he did this, he left it for about four months, took it out. Uh, the flavor profile was quite, it was very intense. It was, there was a lot of yeast, there was a lot of bread notes. So what he thought he'd do is he'd uh, take that liquid out and leave it to one side and then refill the casks with another batch of the 23-year-old Glenfiddich. So what's in the glass in front of us is a 23-year-old Glenfiddich cask finished off in French Cuvée casks that are first and second fill. So that means that the flavor profile has become less intense, more rounded. Um, again, that kind of signature Glenfiddich style. Mm-hmm. But then on the palate, you get that kind of really buttery brioche. But it's almost, I think it's a little bit refreshing as well. It's just a perfect, perfect whiskey for celebrating with friends. Cheers so, to that. Cheers. <laughs> I can't thank Alex enough for bringing along some grand crew for me to try and for being on my show today. Of course, my cocktail of the week is the Rob Roy. The story goes that the Rob Roy was invented in 1894 by a bartender who worked at New York City's Waldorf Astoria Hotel. 
the same year as the operetta based on the real-life Rob Roy McGregor debuted. Of course, you can never trust any cocktail history, and there are other reports that it was also invented in the Duke House, a bar across from the Manhattan Ferry using Usher Scotch whiskey. Or could it be the story of the barkeep who worked at the Little Hungry Cafe in Brooklyn? Who knows? I do know that Liam Neeson played the famous Rob Roy in the 90s, and there is now a Liam Neeson drinking game. Switch on any of his films, and when Liam answers the phone, mentions his daughter, threatens someone, etc., you drink. Sounds like it could be trouble. So if you intend to play this, please drink responsibly. All this talk about Rob Roy's, and you still don't know how to make one. So let's get to our cocktail of the week. Add all the following ingredients to a mixing glass. 50 ml of Glenfiddich 12, 20 ml of sweet vermouth, 10 ml of Benedictine, and two dashes of Angostura bitters. Stir it down and strain into a coupette. Then garnish with a lemon twist. You'll find this recipe and more whiskey recipes, plus all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. After seeing the film with Liam Neeson, I made it a habit to drink Rob Roy's for a while. I remember one particularly good one made at the Campbell Apartment, a bar set under Grand Central Station, which was the office of a Jazz Age financier named John W. Campbell. It was since bought, and I haven't been there since the 90s. But in its heyday, it made a mean Rob Roy. If you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us by buying us a coffee? Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash lushlife, and you can donate once or monthly to make sure we are still here every Tuesday. Also, you know how much I love to talk about cocktails, and we can all be together talking on the flick.group slash lushlife app. It's free to join and works on Android or iOS devices. Plus, you can listen to the latest episodes right there if you want to catch up. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Okay, the second part was mine. Up and coming on Lush Life, we are off to Venice via London with restaurateur Russell Norman, and we finally discover whether the Aperol Spritz is traditionally served with an olive or an orange. Until next time, bottoms up.